From a very early age, uh, we encourage kids to play nice with others. I think it's a phrase that attaches in our minds. Uh, It must. If you throw this into a Google image search, there are all kinds of people who are selling coffee mugs and t-shirts and all sorts of things, patches, letting the world know that they do not play nice with others. And that shouldn't really surprise us because wherever we look in our world, we see lots of people who are not getting along, right? People who are not playing nice with others. It seems like uh, our social fabric just is broken down where we just cannot get along with other people and get things done and try to um, deal with other people in a way that's respectful and kind and builds one another up. We just struggle to get along and to cooperate when we're with groups of people. And frankly, that tends to be worse the less that the other people are like us, right? Uh, we fight in our own families, but we generally have our kind of own rules and our own sense of who we are. But then if you include your neighbors, or then if we try to, say, get two countries that are of different cultures to get along, it just gets more and more and more complicated. We're just not very good with playing along and dealing with other people. And ideally, church should be the kind of place that can help people do this better, right? Church should be the kind of community where we get along. And yet we find that churches don't seem to know how to get along with each other any better than anybody else. It seems as if there's just mass fighting. If you get two Christians in a room and you bring up any subject, there will probably be some kind of, well, I don't know about that, to just straight out hostilities, right? You can imagine what it's like when you get 10 preachers in a room. There are so many opinions that it is hard for anybody to really move anywhere. And it kind of begs for us, how do we move to a place where we can get along with other people? How do we bring ourselves to, the, to a context and a, an understanding where we can operate well with people who don't think like us and maybe don't agree with us and maybe have different backgrounds or different thoughts or different ideas? And it's something that's really important for us to consider as a church. One of the reasons we're going to have the sermon series we're having is as we talked about in our annual report last year, or again, last year, last week as we talked about in our annual report, uh, the church up at Blackstone Valley, a church that kind of uh, has its deep relationship with us, uh, is looking at spending a trial period where their members are going to come down here and that maybe they are going to merge into our church. And I would like to say we're Christians, they're Christians, we have very similar beliefs, everything will always be perfect and easy and we'll all get along. But you know that that's probably not the case, right? Every once in a while, there's going to be differences. Their worship services aren't exactly like ours. Uh, when Bruce, Bruce will be preaching some uh, here at, Black, at, at the feast, and I'll be preaching a little bit less. Not a lot less, but just a little bit less. And Bruce doesn't preach like I do. We have very different uh, homiletical styles. Uh, I enjoy his preaching, but it's, it's just a little different. There's all kinds of little things that could grate on your nerves. And this isn't a surprise if you are honest There are people in this room who have done things or say things or go about things in a way that kind of grates on your nerves, right? Hopefully we look past them and we get on with things, but this is a reality. This is part of living in community. And so as we look at that reality of how does one group of people welcome another group of people? How do we play well with one another? How do we get past differences? How do we get past any kind of... um, disagreements or just 
things that are different or how do we deal with change. I wanted to spend some time over the next few weeks to go to a text that I think is better than any other to talk about how different groups of people should get along. And that is the book of Romans. Um, the book of Ro- the book of Romans. So um, I put that slide. I should have put it two places. Uh, Romans is a very important book because Paul deals very explicitly with this idea of how do you get along with somebody who is different than you. And so we're going to go through Romans and we're not going to hit every chapter. Romans is a dense, complex, beautiful piece of theology that has 16 chapters, which would take about 28 weeks to probably preach in any sort of decency. And uh, that is not my goal. My goal is instead that we're just going to spend a few weeks focused, very targeted, uh, having a very targeted focus on passages about how you get along with other people and how you treat other people. And that's going to be our focus. Romans is a good book for this because of the context of Romans. If you've been with us for a while, maybe this is something that you've, um, you've heard me talk about before. Please forgive me for those of you who are new to this. Hopefully this will be helpful. Uh, the book of Romans really begins in a way with this guy. This is the emperor, uh, emperor, emperor Claudius. Uh, Claudius was emperor in the middle of the first century. And he did something very famous. In fact, so famous, it's one of the few things that is very clearly and explicitly expressed both in Roman history and in the New Testament. Uh, This is one of those events that's really easy to line up. In fact, our entire uh, dating of the book of Acts, as far as when it was written by Paul, is explicitly because of the events of what Claudius does. And what historians tell us is that the Jewish people of Rome were starting to have a lot of conflict uh, over what one of the Roman historians calls a man named Crestus. Uh, we're guessing that he just isn't real good with his spelling, and he actually means Christus or Christ, that the conflict between Christians and Jews in Rome had become so great that Claudius decides to kick anybody of Jewish descent out of the city of Rome. He can't figure out what the argument is about. He doesn't care what the argument is about. He goes, that's fine. Get all of you out of here. This is an example of Roman anti-Semitism, uh, which was a common thing. And so Claudius says to all of the Jewish people in the city, you've got to go. You've got to leave town. And so all of the Jewish Christians do leave. Now, it's, uh, we don't really know how the church in Rome was founded. The best guess we have is that on the day of Pentecost, we're told that there were many people from all over the world uh, worshiping at the temple, and many of them believed in Jesus that day. Our guess is that a bunch of them were from Rome. Rome was such a huge population center in the ancient world that undoubtedly there was some amount of Jewish people who lived in Rome who had done a pilgrimage to Jerusalem who would have heard Peter's sermon and would have become Christians and then went back and they started a church. And that church would have been a pretty much culturally Jewish church. They would have believed in Jesus, but they probably would have sung all of the hymns that they always sang at the synagogue. They would probably read their scriptures in Hebrew. They would practice things like kosher eating and um, circumcising their sons and all the kinds of things that a Jewish person would do to be part of their culture. And so the church was probably defined by Judaism. 
They may have accepted Gentiles in, as Gentiles were accepted in other places, but those Gentiles still would have come into a Jewish structure with Jewish patterns and Jewish habits and Jewish um, uh, just tradition. Well, what happens is all of those people who are leading that church get kicked out of town by Claudius, and the Gentiles are now left by themselves in these churches to now figure out their own way. So you can guess what would have happened, right? They probably would have started some, singing some songs in Greek because, or even Latin because they're Roman people that have Greek and Latin traditions. And they probably would have um, started letting people bring bacon to the potlucks, right? You know, there's like all these little things that wouldn't have been acceptable before that all of a sudden were okay because, hey, now we're all Gentiles. We don't have to live in a Jewish cultural church. We can live in a Greek cultural church. Well, thankfully, uh, eventually the Rome lets up and allows the Jewish people to return into Rome. And you can imagine the catastrophe that is found. All of these Jewish church leaders stroll back into these communities that they were in charge of 10 years ago, and they're suddenly welcomed by Greek elders and preachers and deacons and all of a sudden it's well what way are we going to do church are we going to sing those songs we sang back when we were mostly jewish church or are we going to sing these songs that we sing now as a greek church when we have potluck are we going to follow kosher law or are we not when we spend time uh, are, are, what are we going to teach about kids when a baby is born what will the preacher say they should do as far as circumcision or not circumcision we know from uh, other texts like 1 Corinthians uh, that he, the, the, the Jewish people and Gentile people had different practices about whether or not they put a cloak over or not over their head as they prayed. And so they would fight over whether you had to pray with your head covered or your head not covered because that was a cultural thing that they were dealing with. And you can just imagine the squabbles that break out and just the hurt feelings the leadership from the Jewish days are going, we started this church. We were here forever. Why don't we get to do things the way we always did them before you ruin them? And the Gentiles go, wait a second. You are not going to patronize me anymore. You maybe treated me like a young little baby Christian five, ten years ago. But I've been running this place since you've been gone. You think that you're going to treat me like I'm incapable? And so there's all of this chaos. And so Paul writes the book of Romans to say, you guys have got to get along. And he lays out this huge theological treatise. That's not the way to say that word. Treatise on how you are supposed to get along with other people. And we're going to start with a passage from Romans 3. What shall we conclude? Paul's been talking about Jews and Gentiles and how they're both sinful. What shall we conclude then? Do we, meaning we Jews, because Paul is a Jew, have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. 
Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. What Paul says is, if you want to have a sense of how to get along with people, the first thing you have to understand is, we're all terrible. Okay? We are just all imprisoned in the, in the jail of sin. And none of us are good. None of us do the things that we're supposed to. All of us are filled with bitterness and rage and envy and all of these terrible things that Paul lists here as he quotes these passages from the Hebrew Bible. And he says, it is the same if you're a Gentile or if you're a Jew. Now, some of you are immediately going, I don't know about this, right? This feels like a little bit of false, uh, false equivalency. You cannot tell me that someone that steals a candy bar from a convenience store and someone who embezzles millions of dollars and somebody who kills someone in a crime of passion and someone who commits genocide are all the same morally. And I don't, I don't think that's the place that we want to go because Jesus does talk about weightier matters of the law and less weighty matters of the law. There are things that are kind of more morally important to us. And obviously, uh, Jesus teaches that when he says the first and greatest commandment, right? There can't be a greatest commandment if there's not lesser commandments. And so it's not to say all things are morally equivalent. It's just to say that whatever you do, whatever your sin problem is, it doesn't make you comparatively righteous if it's better than someone else. It just makes you less evil, but still evil. This is sort of Paul's opinion, is that if you are a human being, you're a violator of God's will. You're somebody that does bad things. And it doesn't matter if you do lots of bad things or really terrible bad things or less bad things. You're still doing bad things. Another way to think of this is uh, imagine someone who's riding down the road. The speed limit is 60 miles an hour. Paul says if you go 61 or if you go 110 you're still breaking the speed limit. You can't go, well, look at me. I am an upright legal citizen who follows the speed limit. No, you don't. You might be one over, you might be 110 over. You're still breaking the law. You're still doing what you're not supposed to. And Paul would go even further to go, and all of you guys are sitting here like bickering about 61. I know you people. You're going 150, okay? Like when you read this description of humanity, he's like, I just know people and people are terrible. They are just so prone to hurting other people and being unkind and being selfish and being obsessed with the things they want and not with the things that others want. Paul will say that this is just endemic to who we are as humanity, that we just so easily break down and do the wrong thing. You learn this if you live in any sort of family relationship. Whether it's with your parents or your kids or a spouse, you will know that if you're honest, on a given week, you do something kind of gross at least once or twice a week, right? 
I mean, if you're a parent, you try so hard to raise your kids, but you always have that conversation. You go, oh, man, I really messed that up. I'm a terrible dad. They're going to need therapy, right? You know, like you just have that fear because you know that you're just so prone to not doing things the way that you should. And so the core of Paul's teaching about how to get along with other people. At the very, this, uh, this chapter here in three, he encapsulates all of chapters one through three. And what she's making clear, we're all really, really, really bad. And so when you want to know how do I get along with other people, the starting place is to acknowledge that person is terrible and so am I. We are all equally lost without God. And that gives you some empathy when somebody does something wrong or when someone mistreats you. But he doesn't end there. Paul keeps saying, talking. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I will confess that uh, I am opening a can of worms which I cannot possibly uh, fully explain in this passage. This passage is very thick and complex and important when in the way it talks about atonement, justification, the way that Jesus is both, God is both just and the one who justifies. That is so meaningful and rich and we could do a whole sermon on it, but it's not the point of today. The point of today is that we cannot stop with we're all sinful. Maybe some of you in a Bible class at some point were taught to memorize that verse. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? And it's a good verse to remember. It's a a verse we often start with when we're trying to tell someone about our need for Jesus. That we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But that sentence does not end there. There is not a period at that point. Paul quite clearly says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then he says... And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The dichotomy and almost the oxymoronic thing that Paul says is that we are equal because we are all equally disgusting in how we live and we're all equally loved and treasured and saved by Jesus Christ. You cannot underestimate how bad your sin is and you cannot overestimate how much God loves you in spite of it. And for Paul, that is the core of how you start to treat people the right way. See, if it was just the sin thing, if it was just we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, there'd be so much room for boasting. Because if we all sinned, but there's not the second half, we'll go, well, all of us have sinned, and some of us have pulled ourselves out of that hole, and some have not. But that is not what Paul says. He says, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short, And we got the hand up from God equally. It is through faith in Jesus. It is purely entrusting God to fix the mess that we made and we could not fix that we become part of his people. 
And so you can never say that person's worse than me because you are just as bad as they are. And you cannot say I am more righteous than them because you are only where you are by the grace of God because great God has given you the ability to come out of that space, to come out of that place. This, uh, so what does this mean? How does this affect us? How does it change how we live? It just makes us really humble people. Um, an example of this uh, I will regularly, uh, sometimes you'll read stories in the news about someone who's in prison or maybe someone who's about to uh, be put to death by the state, right? Death penalty. And you, I, I, it's just, it's a macabre thing to do, but sometimes if you read the comments of a story like this, there are these comments where someone goes, well, good. They deserve to go to jail forever. They deserve to die. And I, I don't want to have kind of the moral question about those things. What I want to say is that the Christian's response should always be a degree of empathy and a degree of humility. The Christian is the person who says, if I was in the right spot and the right circumstances, I'm just as capable of that crime as they are. I'm just as broken as somebody who's in prison. I'm just as broken as somebody who's killed somebody. I've been blessed by maybe circumstances where that's not been uh, helpful for me. I've been, you know, maybe been kept out of certain times and places and scenarios where that hasn't reared up in me. But I know that I have a capacity for hate. And Jesus says that when we start to hate other people, we're already going down the road of murder. And so we don't look at those people, even people who've done terrible things and go, I'm glad I'm not as bad as that guy. I once had a friend who's in law school and we were talking about the idea of redemption within the legal system. And he goes, well, I'm partially a lawyer in part because I just believe some people are so fundamentally broken. We just have to throw them in prison. They just can't be with the rest of us. I was like, no way, man. That's not my belief system. I'm fundamentally broken. But I've been given grace and kindness and peace. And God has pulled me out of things that I'd be in if I didn't. And this affects smaller stuff too. When you're fighting with someone and they're not being kind to you, you go, well, they're not being kind to me, but I am often unkind to other people. When somebody else says something that's not fair, it's not, well, I am the paragon of righteousness. I never say anything that's unfair. Yes, you do. You know you do. You know there are times that you say unfair things in arguments just because you want to win. You know you say mean things in arguments that aren't true just because you want to hurt somebody else. You know those things are in your heart. You know we're all capable of it. And when other people do it to us, it's the biggest offense in the world. It's so unjust. We're going to rail against it. And when we do it to other people, it's like, hey, whatever, I'm human. And you cannot exist in relationships if that's the way you go about them. If your mistakes are easily forgotten and other people's need to be fully prosecuted, you will never have good relationships. Paul says if you want to start, acknowledge how broken you are and acknowledge that you and everyone else would be in a total mess of depravity. That is what Romans 1 through 3 is, a mess of depravity. And you'd be there if it wasn't for the goodness and grace of God. In some ways, it's a depressing message, right? Because it's like, oh, some of you hear this message and you hear the first half and you're like, I'm so worthless. I'm so bad. 
But that's not really the point of the passage. I mean, it's kind of the point of the passage. Some of you will hear the other half. God loves me so much that it does not matter how bad I am. And when we hold those things in tension, that you are much more evil than you want to admit, and that you are much more loved than you ever realized. It's then you can start to heal, come to peace with yourself, and then you can live and exist with other people. This is true as we start this relationship with Blackstone. We are going to bring a bunch of sinners into our church, right? Not because they're worse than anybody else, but just because they're people. And so there will be sinful people coming into the church. And they are also people that have been loved and redeemed and made holy by God. No differently than you. And when we all start at that place evenly together, we can have the humility to exist together. But it's not just that. I mean, I'm bringing this up because of that situation. And trust me, I think the situation is a good one. If, you, if this sounds like me having concerns, it's not. It's just trying to prepare us on how to deal with people. And it's going to be the same at your office tomorrow or your school or with your kids. You are going to deal with monsters tomorrow. People that do bad things to people. And those people are just as messed up as you are. And they're just as loved by God as you are. And when you come to embrace that, that's the start of dealing with people the way Jesus would deal with people. (laughs) They're not doing Jericho out there, just so you're aware. All right. Um, Q&A. At the end of our sermons, we have a time for questions. So if there's something about this sermon that you want to ask, something that struck your curiosity, we would love to hear you ask those questions now. Oh, yeah. How do you get into that headspace? That's a good question. Um, So practicing repentance is a really good thing. So when you make a mistake and you know you've made a mistake, looking at someone and go, I'm sorry, even if they're not demanding an apology. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And then also praying like, God, I messed that up. I did not want to be that way. Help me be different. Because, like, if our mistakes we just kind of gloss over, we kind of forget how many of them there are. Some people like to journal this kind of stuff, right? Um, let's talk about depressing reading, right? But, um, you know, just to have that moment. I, I do this, the place I do this okay is with my kids. When I am too overbearing and I'm too harsh with them, I'll bring them in and I'll be like, I'm sorry I did not treat you the way I should have in this situation. Because um, I want them to... It's really important to me that kids hear their parents say that sometimes, to know their parents make mistakes. Because um, it's really easy as a parent to be like, I'm the parent. I don't care if I made a mistake. They, uh, if I yelled at them for something I shouldn't have, I'm sure they got away with something they should have got yelled at for anyway, right? Like, it's just easy to have that defense mechanism. So I would say that. Uh, the other thing is just kind of a mental exercise of when someone has really hurt you, to look and say... Uh, you know, I don't think that this is the way this is going to go, but we kind of have this image sometimes in church of this courtroom in heaven where like all our sins are brought before us. There's this huge crowd of everyone we've ever known. If I were to charge somebody in a court like that and say, you know what, Seth's a big meanie because he did this to me the other day. Who in the audience would pop up and go, Caleb, you have got no room to talk. You, and then immediately say something that I did that's like what you did to me, Right? And I just try to go through that exercise of like, if this person has been harsh to me, who have I been harsh to lately 
that could just, could, you know, I'm being hypocritical. You know, where have I done something the same? Um, I think that's helpful to just, but you, it has to be, I mean, real practically, it's like breathing exercises and everything, right? Because you get all worked up and you're driving home from work and somebody said something to you and you're just, you know, speeding down the freeway and cursing under your breath and just the ability to like breathe in and breathe out, slow your heart rate down a little bit and say, if I'm thinking about this, where have I done something like this in my life? And then kind of like, God, I know that I can be a liar. Help me get over when somebody lies to me. It's just just rehearsing your own misdeeds. And also rehearsing the ways that God has forgiven you and changed you. Um, I think many of us also have moments where someone gave us grace that we did not deserve. It's probably a mentor or a parent or a boss or somebody where we screwed up really badly. We thought the hammer was going to come down. And they go, listen, people make mistakes. Just don't do it again. And then to remember how that felt and then to think about how we can like give that to someone else. Uh, I don't know. Does that help? I mean, those are just kind of mental. Christians using punishment. So are you talking about like within the legal system or within the church? Or... Yeah. So I guess what I would say is this. Romans, actually, because it's about these things, has a whole little section where Paul says God has ordained the government to be over you to take care of matters of legal issues. All right. Now, that really bothers us, particularly when the election doesn't go our way. Right. Like, what does that mean? We're a participatory democracy. You know, our head starts to fume. But Paul said, you know, it's much easier when you've got a king that kind of is just there and wasn't picked. But Paul says, you know, the the emperor was put here to put people in jail. And so let the emperor take care of it. The vengeance is the Lord's. You don't worry about it. And so do I think it's just that people go to jail? Yes, I do think we should have prisons. And if someone kills someone, they should go to prison for it. I mean, I'm not against those things. It's the heart thing where I go, oh, Yes, that person deserves to go to jail because he is less righteous than I, where we're just starting to mess ourselves up internally. Don't have bleeding. Yeah, prison is a, it's, a, it's an unfortunate thing. And, and I do think, you know, we talk about brokenness. I think that there may be certain psychological, biological, I don't know, things that certain people have that means that they need to be in some kind of facility for the rest of their lives for the safety of themselves and other people. I think that's possible too. And just because I believe in grace doesn't believe that I don't think that somebody maybe needs to be institutionalized, right? But there's a difference between saying that's a thing that we've got to do because it's right and it's just and it keeps everyone safe. And that's something we're going to do because it's going to feel so much fun to string them up, you know? Gotcha. Great, thank you. And if we truly believe that all of sin, all people have a certain inherent kind of push to do things wrong, then when people do crimes, that's a manifestation of it. But even our justice system is also a manifestation of it. Does that make sense? Like, even if we're trying to fix things, and even though I'm not saying they're equally morally, I'm just saying if broken people are in charge of the punishment system, then there will be an inherent brokenness in the punishment system as well. And so, and that's where sometimes Christians are like, well, we need to respect the law and police and courts. And I'm not saying you don't respect the law and police and courts, but I'm saying that you acknowledge that they are filled by sinful people who are going to make mistakes. 
because there's no other kinds of organization. Frankly, the church is a sinful organization filled with people who make mistakes as well. Um, it just that, that humility thing just constantly hits you. And if somebody criticizes an organization, you go, well, that's probably fair because we're probably making mistakes because we're human. Oh, no, no. So, yeah, don't, I, I don't want to be misheard there. Uh, it's not that we become um, moral relativists who are like, oh, hey, whatever, nothing matters. No, these things are still bad. And Paul is very clear that this sin is bad. And that there is a place for um, both within the church and outside of the church to say, hey, this is a wrong behavior. We should not do this. That is totally appropriate. Um, again, it comes to a heart thing. Um, Paul talks a lot in Romans about us being slaves to sin. And that sin has dominion over us. And so Paul would not see someone who said gossiping as a terrible person who's worse than anybody else, who's doing this evil thing and spreading gossip. I think he would see someone who is so lost and broken that they are shackled by gossip. And so when he confronts it, it's not so much you're terrible, you're doing this. It's you need to fix this so that you can be free from the, from the shackles of sin. I, I think it's, yeah, I definitely think it's fair to um, engage in those situations. Particularly, I would say, if you feel moved in your conscience by the Holy Spirit to say, hey, this isn't right, it is always a bad idea to ignore that, right? The Bible talks to us about kind of listening to the Spirit and not quenching the Spirit. And so if there's something we think is wrong and going on and, and we feel compelled to speak, I think we should.